I, I didn't put the discussion top, topic up earlier, but since we're on theme of movies, what's your favorite closing scene from a movie? Anybody? Like, like so I was an usher at the Blue Springs Theater when I was in high school, and I got to see every closing scene because you're always ready to open the doors and start cleaning up and that sort of thing, right? So there were a lot of really good closing scenes, but do you have a favorite closing scene? Far and away. Far and away? Help me. What's the... Tom Cruise. No, no, but what's the closing scene? Uh, uh, I'm going to give the movie away. Oh, well, maybe don't do that. Okay. <laughs> if, does anybody so, care? Does anybody no. care? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> give the movie away. He, he dies. Oh, what? And the, and the, camera, <laughs> the camera goes up like this. And she says, oh, I love... And she finally tells him she loves him. And then the camera comes back down like this. And he wakes up and he says, I wondered about that. Oh, he didn't die. He wasn't kidding. He actually died and came back. There you go. Yeah. Any other favorite movie? Anything where they end with and like there's like an explosion going on in the background and then they're like victoriously walking away from it. And for some reason, bad boys popped up in my head. (laughs) There is. I've seen. You have to have. You have to have a strut and not flinch when they blow. Yeah, and they. Greatest movie ever, but Shutter Island in the end Ooh. when like it's, all really it's actually mm-hmm. the real life is not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't give it away. Don't. Don't yeah. Okay, Shutter Island, but they close. Okay. All right. You guys are missing the. You're missing the strike that the three and O the three O fastball right across the middle of the plate. Huh? Tombstone? No, I don't remember the closing scene of oh, Tombstone. They're dancing in the snow. That's like oh, that was a that's actually the bad part of Tombstone. Great like part. Like at the end of Braveheart. Oh, part, when he's like, being murdered. Yeah, yeah that's oh, like, his entrails are falling. Out. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a good one. The the worst inning. Sure. Lord of the Rings. It's like thirty minutes of. Oh, yeah, and you can see through his hand. That's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good inning. Come on, folks. None of you looked at your notes? When Indiana Jones, when the Ark is put in a warehouse in the middle of somewhere under the watchful care of the government. That is a great ending of a movie. Like, it's this huge thing. And then the arc just ends up in a little box, shoved on some you know, shelf in the middle of a... Like, that is a really... It's a good, um, I don't know, twist, juxtaposition, right? That all the whole world, like, is looking for this. It's just in a warehouse, right? Um, that's one of my favorite endings. It's one of my favorite endings. So we are going to talk about the Ark today. We have we have made our conceptual journey through the opening. We've seen the courtyard uh, as defined by the 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 linens, um, the kind of the fence, if you will. Uh, we've walked past the the brazen altar where the sacrifice happens. We've walked past the brazen laver where uh, the priest uh, cleaned their hands. We've entered into the tabernacle proper, and on on so so walk with me. On this side, we see the the what? On this side, we see the candlestick. 
On this side, it illuminates the table of showbread, picturing the Word of God. Right in front of us is the altar of incense. Altar of incense. You were checking to see if I knew, right? The altar of incense, and then the veil, right? So it's very dark, except for the the candle. Where beyond the veil is our final piece of furniture. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's not, at this point, it is not in a government warehouse. It is in the center of worship for the nation of Israel. The center of God's presence on earth is this ark and mercy seat. So on your page, you have the design and uh, reference to the build. Uh, I'll read this. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without thou shalt overlay it. And thou shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about it. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold, and thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the ring of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. They shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee, and thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, so it's the same size as the, the ark itself. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other. And the even the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and the um, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Okay. So the summary of the build, which appears in Exodus thirty-seven, I think I have the reference on there. We're not going to spend the time on it because it's actually a shortened version. But let's talk about it's on the slides uh, if you if you ever want to download it. Let's talk about the size for for just a moment. So two and a half cubits long based on an 18 inch cubit is about 45 inches long so not even a full four feet long uh it's about 29 inches wide if you will or across and the same tall so it's a relatively small piece of furniture right so i think sometimes it's pictured as this kind of grander thing than it is but it's not even a full four feet long and it's 29 inches tall or so and 29 inches wide. So again, relatively small. Um, the uniqueness, we've, we've kind of picked up on this as I've gone through the study, that this furniture, almost all the pieces of furniture have a set of common characteristics and a set of unique characteristics, which I think is an interesting study. It's the only furniture that actually stays covered Right, so um, when they transfer or transport, rather the um, the golden candlestick, right? They they cover it. Um, they same with the altar of uh, the brazen altar or the brazen laver. They 
they care, they cover these things uh, to, when they transport it. They take the staves out for use, right? In this case, the all or the uh, ark and its associated mercy seat cover, um, you know, it stays kind of covered. It is it is what it is. And it's designed to store or to hold, right? All the others are designed for the actual process of worship. This is actually for the purpose of, of keeping something as a remembrance, which is which is technically different, right? It's technically different. Um, the things that go in it, arguably, are still in it. Can't prove me wrong, right? Um, they're arguably still in the ark, uh, whereas like the table of showbread, that was to be removed, the altar of incense, uh, that would be burn up and you'd have to add to it. Same with the labor. You'd have to empty and add water. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, if you touch the thing, you die. Right. So who's going to get in? The Nazis. They're dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> you guys are with me, right? Okay. okay, just making sure. Not really the Nazis, but just in the movies. But right. Yeah, but, but, but seriously, I mean, well, how would you get to the stuff? It has to be in there. Because you die if you touch it. So Even I, the guy died to try to just catch it. Right. So I am uh, I am not afraid to admit that I'm a sinner. And I sometimes figure out ways to circumvent God. Oh, yeah. And it would actually not be too difficult, especially if I didn't believe in Jehovah, to get that mercy seat top off without, uh, without touching it. it. That's true. It just takes a couple of guys to go, right? So... I argue. I would argue that in fact it's still intact somewhere on the face of the earth, and it, I do believe it's going to make it an appearing again. I don't know that. I can't prove it, but I do think it's going to make it appearing again. But I digress. It's interesting in the sense that it's covered, and it's it's storing, and what it's storing is actually relatively small for the size that it's storing, right? And although it's the same height as the table of showbread. All the other proportions are different. So everything is kind of at a different height in the, in the ark and, or I'm sorry, in the uh, tabernacle and it's in the, in the courtyard. It's all, it's all very unique. I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a message there. Certainly when we can contrast it to first Corinthians in the body, right? Every member's in the body as it's pleased him. And every member, like if, if all were the eyes, where were the hearing, right? And if all were the candlestick, where would the table of showbread be, right? It's very unique. And although it has a crown of gold, like the table of showbread or the altar of incense, both of those have it, the mercy seat appears to sit within that crown and kind of be locked in on that crown. And I think that's an interesting, also an interesting illustration, right? That God's going to dwell within this crown and the other places that he does that is in prayer and the word of God, okay? Those are just interesting pictures, interesting parallels. Um, the staves were left in. We talked about that just a little bit. Um, that, but it is interesting to me that it was always ready to be moved. And there is a um, an implication that the children of Israel did with the ark because of the staves being left in that they took it with them into battle. We're actually not going to spend any significant time on that today, but they would literally take the ark, this most prized, pr 
prized possession of the, the nation of Israel where God would meet with them and they would take it into battle because they wanted God to be with them in the battle, right? So it's always ready for transport. And it's actually two items, the ark, which is basically a hollowed out bottom box, and then the mercy seat that sits on top, okay? Let's talk about the contents for just a second. He said, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. That's real interesting. He references that things are going to go in, but he calls them a testimony, okay? He calls them a testimony. Now, they were added during the wilderness journey, and there's no commentary on how they got the mercy seat off and added these components. I'm not going to surmise that whether God opened the lid magically, uh, supernaturally, whether they were allowed to touch it at that point, uh, I, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Some, so, and, and, and you're going to know more than I. And I don't know about that. but Isn't yeah. there some confusion on whether the Levite priests could, that, 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 that there's some of them that in the proper, you know. In context. Would, context and when they would cleanse themselves. Mm-hmm. They had to be, you know, clean. Then that's when they could do that without harm. Well, I, yeah, I do think all of those things were requirements for them to be able to, to touch the ark, if you will. But I also think it was contextual to when God told them to, right? So it wasn't just, oh, cool, God did this wonderful thing. Let's put that in the ark too, right? He was very explicit. I will tell you what I want you to put in, but don't miss the word testimony here, okay? Because what God is building with his ark is a testimony of his faithfulness, okay? A testimony of his faithfulness. Now, these were primarily remembrances, They were things that were supposed to go in that were a testimony of God acting that the children of Israel were supposed to remember. Do they see them? No. They put them in one time, arguably, and then the second thing that went in, then they maybe saw the first thing, and when they put the third thing in, they saw the first two. But a a very small number of people, most likely. And this is not something they would take the mercy seat off and be like, hey, guys, remember... What God did, it's just in their their mind, right? It's just in their in their heart, if you will. So we got to jump all the way over into the New Testament in Hebrews chapter nine, uh, verse four, to, to understand what fully ended up in there. The Ark of the Covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and then we'll talk about Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. So in Exodus 13, we see the reference of God putting or telling them to do this. And Moses said unto Aaron, take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. This is the, 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 the description of Moses getting direction from the Lord and t- Moses telling Aaron, take this omer of manna, put it in a pot, and put that in the in the uh, in the ark. We're going to remember it, and it's a picture of provision, right? Because the Lord provided manna, but it's also a picture of communion. Okay, not necessarily the Lord's supper communion, but this communion, this intimacy relationship that we have with the Lord. Okay.
that he provides for us, and then we can have that relationship ongoing. So the second one, so this up here is the same. I just highlighted Aaron's rod that budded. Number 17, so these aren't, this isn't even in the book of Exodus. And it came to pass on the morrow, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. And behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi, they're trying to, to make some selections here, brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. So it budded, it, it, this rod that was presumably dead stick, not only came back to life, but it produced flower fruit and fruit fruit very quickly. And the Lord said unto Moses, bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept a token against the rebels that thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. So it was put in the ark. Again, we know it specifically in contrasting in, in, uh, for full clarity under Hebrews chapter 9. The third is the tables of the covenant. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. Remember that, Moses? Remember how you threw those down? I'm going to redo it. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't address. Uh, and this was a picture of leadership and worship because Aaron <clears throat> needed to lead the people in worship. So they're choosing. So Moses is seeing who God is choosing to lead, in this case, to lead in worship. I apologize for skipping that. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first uh, tables, which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark and put the tables in the ark, which I had made, and there they be as the Lord commanded me. So these are a picture of the word of God, okay, and his forgiveness, Okay? Not necessarily forgiveness of sin, but his ability to overcome your errors in ministry. Okay, His ability to say, you know what, I'm bigger than that. One thing that I have said many times, I believe you've heard this from me, most of you have heard this from me, I am going to fail you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. you didn't need to chime in that much, bro. <laughs> like, like, like. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree, Mitch, but you try real hard. That's what I was hoping for. Um, yeah, next time a little quieter on the amen. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, but I am going to fail you. I'm not going to get back to you quick enough. Uh, in a moment when you need me, uh, I'm going to be busy. I'm, I'm going to be tied up. I'm not going to answer you quite the way you're hoping. I'm going to... Like, I'm going to, because I walk in flesh, I'm going to screw up. I think I've told this story before. I won't go into a lot of detail because relationships with these people are in this room. But there was a, a pastor who was ministering to a, a, a lady. And he, the lady was sitting on the stairs. And I was walking with said pastor. And we were talking. And she was crying on the stairs. And the pastor said, how you doing? And she said, horrible. As he's walking up the stairs, he's like, good to hear. Because his mind was in my, the conversation we were having. We get to the top of the stairs and I said, uh, Pastor Blank, she was crying and said she was not doing well. And he looked at me, he's like, are you serious? And of course he ran back down and ministered like, to her, okay? We're going to fail. Like, pastors, or like the best of men are men at best, okay? We are going to fail you. I, at some point, like, 
I, I don't know about two, but I still think of Mel Brooks dropping the third tablet. Anybody else with me? History of the World, part one. I give to you these 15, and he drops one of the tablets, and he says, 10, 10 commandments. Um, but that's still funny to me. I, I, Mel Brooks is just funny. But, but Moses gets mad and throws the tablets down, breaks them, because the people are, are sinning, right? I get it. I get the frustration. But, but God deals with it very clearly. And Moses had to write these words, by the way. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. Like, I'm going to fix your screw-up in ministry, Moses. And it's going to be a testimony forever. Okay? So it's a picture of the word of God and forgiveness. All right. So the building lesson, the first building lesson is the Lord already knows you're a work in progress. Now, I want to be very careful. You are complete in Christ. Okay? If you got saved, if you've prayed to ask the Lord to forgive your sins and to be saved, you are complete. You just aren't acting like it yet. Okay? You're still carrying around flesh. Now, Paul challenges us in a couple of different places, and I don't have these references, that he's like, I die daily because I still am not really fully in with the Lord. Like, until I die physically. He even tells the Colossians, you got to mortify your members, which are on the earth. Like, you've got to stay dead. You've got to stay dead. He tells people to put things in remembrance, right? That they've been taught. Like, there's all sorts of things that we have to do in our spiritual walk. Does that make us less in Christ or less complete? Absolutely not. We don't have to do anything to attain that state with Christ. We, we, just the accepting his, his sacrifice is sufficient. But we do need to grow, okay? And the beautiful thing about the ark the thing that holds up where God dwells, and we're going to see this in just a second, is it's, a, it's an ark of testimony. It's an ark of the journey of the nation of Israel when they weren't following God and he had to intervene. It's beautiful. At some point in time, you're going to be able to tell people about what you were going through back in 23 and 24, and you're going to be proud of it because God's brought you through it. And it's going to be your testimony. It's beautiful. So the purpose of the mercy seat really are twofold. Two primary concepts with the mercy seat. It's where the Lord would meet with man, and then it's recorded that the Lord would dwell there. Okay, so let's spend just a couple of minutes talking about this meeting with man. He would connect with man here. He, he'll meet with them. He just in, in, a, in a, So we see it in Exodus 30 in verse th- uh, 6 and 36. Thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. Like, hey Moses, this is how it's going down. I'm going to meet you at the mercy seat. Okay, same in 36, before the testimony of the tabernacle of the congregation, where I will meet thee. And then even in Numbers 17, and thou shalt lay them up, lay up, uh, lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony, where I will meet with you. Like this is, I didn't just pull this out of the, like this is a thing. God's going to meet them there. To converse, 
similar concept at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you. Why? To speak unto you there. Or to speak unto thee. Or to speak there unto thee. Excuse me. To speak there unto thee. Like, God, like some sort of audible voice, some sort of spiritual communication was proceeding out the, out of this supernatural meeting with God there. Like, it's amazing. We even see the children of Israel in Judges 20 inquiring of the Lord for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. So they would literally go to the Ark and be like, God, should we do this? And he would somehow answer them, somehow direct them. In Numbers uh, 7, And when Moses was gone into the tabernacle of the congregation to speak with him, to commune, to connect, to speak with God, to converse. And then we also see to commune in Exodus 25, 22. And there I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. Okay? Now this is a little bit different than meeting or just, hey, how's it going? Like I walked past a lot of people this week at Mission Focus and I was like, hey, good to see you. Hope you had a good Christmas. And there were a handful of folks that I communed with, if that makes sense, right? That I sat and I talked with or we shared some intimate time to, of conversing about what God's doing in our lives or, or whatever, what have you. Um, so that's a little different than meeting with. There was this kind of intimacy to commune, okay? Now, we have a problem, and I have... I try to be as transparent as I possibly can be with you all. I shared a verse early on in this study, 2 Samuel 7, 6. It's on your page. Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but I have walked in a tent and a tabernacle. But at the beginning of the study, we also saw that let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And I had a, a trusted brother in this class approach me and say, wait a second, how is it that God, you're saying God never really dwelt with them in the tabernacle, but yet that was the purpose of the tabernacle. So we potentially have a contradiction. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and tabernacle. How do we reconcile that contradiction or kind of contradiction? You've got a couple of lines. I'd like you to take just a second and write a thought as to how we, and there's a handful, I think, of solutions here. How in one verse, God says that it was his purpose to dwell among them, but then books later, referencing back, he says he didn't. Okay, maybe no thoughts, ideas. Yeah. My initial thought is to just like compare scripture and the context and like try to understand there's got to be some um, meaning, some other context surrounding that. Okay. The two words like dwell and dwelt, do they are they the same? Yeah. Same Hebrew word? Yeah. Okay. So we've got some context. We've got words. 
What, what else? I, I can see the brain. I can see the gear spinning. So just share. It's okay. We're in a safe space. Go ahead, Teresa. I see a differentiation between the, the place yeah. and the people. Okay. Okay, so the, the slight variation of that he's dwelling among them versus but not necessarily dwelling in a structure or a specific place. Okay, good. Yeah, good. Maybe to highlight a relationship. Okay, similar concept yeah. that it's with the people rather than a place. Okay, yeah. There's also another, yeah. Um, maybe oh, the difference, but sorry, that both of you are in line. Oh. Difference between the house and the sanctuary. What were you going to say? Well, the last part of the verse where it says, "Even to the there." Right. He's saying he was there, right? But he didn't dwell, right? So, this is a place. So, I think all of you are technically right to some degree. I would even argue that this was the purpose, but whether the purpose was actually fulfilled or not may not be the case, right? But I want to touch on for just a second, and maybe you saw this on your on your page, but let's talk about the words for just a second. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell. And the Hebrew word there is sakan or sakan. I'm not sure how you say it. And notice the times that, that I may dwell with them and I will dwell among the children of Israel, that I may dwell among them. Um... You shall put them that they defile not their camp in the midst thereof where where uh, in the midst whereof I dwell in the camp. Defile not therefore the land which ye shall inhabit where I dwell, for the Lord dwell among the children of Israel. So this sakan word, and I think it's on your on your notes, is an idea of lodging or rest. Okay. I can say that I stay at my house. And I can also say that I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express one time. So I'm pretty smart. Because if you stay at a Holiday Inn Express, you're smart, right? You know, I stayed at a Holiday Express last night, right? So, but I, I dwelled at both of those places, but I dwelled at the hotel one night. I live, I dwell, my stuff, my relationships, my home is, in this case, in Green Valley, right? Those are two different... I dwelled in both of them. Both of them are a dwelling, but they're contextually different dwellings. Let me give you another example. We bought the house, as I mentioned, right? I took a tour of said house, but I can honestly say I've never lived there, right? You, you all agree. I've never lived in that house. But was I dead when I walked through the house? Of course I was living in the house, right? So you have to be careful with words. You have to be careful with language, okay? Just because the dwelling is, and I'm not correcting because the word's the right word. It's to dwell. But we, we apply different kind of expectations to words, right? If I said I... I have never lived in the church house. You could arguably, but incorrectly surmise that I died the moment I walked into the house 
and then came back to life when I walked out of the house because I just said I never lived in the house. But I'm not saying I was never alive in the house, right? So we have to be careful with words. This dwell is a very temporary kind of dwell. But notice here, he says, whereas I have not dwelt, or yasab, in any house, and that is to settle, to marry, to remain or endure, to establish, to tarry. God is literally saying, I lived there with y'all for a short period of time, but I haven't had a place where I've been able to put down my roots. I'm looking forward to that, okay? So that's the way you can, so you have to be careful because specific words in scripture matter and they have specific implications, okay? Now, let's talk in our remaining time about dwelling between the cherubims. I won't look at all of these because the phrase is the same. All of these, notice the references, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 2 Kings, Psalms, and even Isaiah, a prophet. They're all looking backward, right, to the tabernacle. They're all looking backward uh, at, at that. And look at this. So the prophet sent to Shiloh that they might bring the, uh, from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. Okay? Um. So God is dwelling literally that mercy seat, that solid mercy seat with the angels that are the cherubims that have stretched out their wings to cover it. In between there, God dwells right there. We have several references that, that, that reinforce that God lived, he existed, he manifests. I'm trying to come up with different English words to paint the picture that he showed up right there. That was a big deal. But notice everything changed, and Teresa touched on it a little bit. Everything changed when Christ, with Christ's sacrifice because now he doesn't dwell between the two cherubims in the mercy seat. He dwells in, a, in us, even, with us. That my, Christ may dwell in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly that the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us, God at any time, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. God is love and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. The Literally, God showing up at the mercy seat has been replaced with Christ coming and he now lives in a different temple. He now lives in a different tabernacle. His people. That's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. That's a really big deal because you know what? That's where your testimony is developing. Your testimony of, of being saved. Your testimony of a, of a public profession through baptism. Your testimony of, of getting discipled and growing in his word and understanding it and sharing it with others. It's a, a testimony of of, of learning to teach the word, to, to disciple other people, to, to maybe even get to a point where you go on a mission trip or you, you teach the word regularly at the, at the, in the jail ministry or you, you, you end up you know, consecrated and you end up as a missionary or a pastor or a, 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 an apostle, hands up in air quotes, like completely consecrated to the Lord. There is a growth process and that growth process, just like the, this ark 
has staves on it because it's got to move. God wants to dwell in a place that's both permanent and on the move. And we're better than his people. It's beautiful. So it brings us to this lesson, building lesson. It's about God and man being together. He's literally, this is a facet of his reestablishment of his kingdom. It's about God and man being together. And notice what happens in Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 21. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and God uh, and serve him all uh, serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. When we get to heaven, he's no longer in us. We can be separate, if you will, because we will be glorified, right? Continues in Revelation 21.3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. <coughs> Excuse me. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. Right now, he's doing the absolute best he can with human flesh, by being in you if you're in Christ. Whoa, like, how does that work? I can't draw a picture. I don't know how to draw Christ in you and you in Christ. Like, it's a, an enigma wrapped up in a mystery or whatever that quote is. Like, like, I can't pictorially represent it. What I can pictorially represent is this. God and man were together. Man's sin separated that Adam and Eve, right? God establishes a way to commune. The tabernacle. It's the best he can do with the situation he's got. But then God establishes a way to indwell his people, Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture until ultimately God and man are back together. Now, this is a one-time cycle. This might make you think this happens repeatedly. No, one time. Man's sin separates. God establishes a way to commune. He gives you a chance to pray to him. He gives you a chance to ask for forgiveness. And then he establishes this indwelling in you until the point at which you can be together with him for all eternity. If you have never accepted Christ as your personal savior, the Lord is not dwelling in you. At best, he's dwelling around you because you know why? There's other people in this room that the Lord's in. And we dearly, dearly want you to understand that you have a sin problem. Sam put it put it beautifully on Christmas Eve. It's horrible bad news that he was delivered on Christmas Eve. You've sinned. You've separated yourself from an eternal God because you've messed up. Oh, but the glorious, glorious good news is he's provided a way to take your sin. Amen, brothers. He died on the cross. He conquered sin and death. He rose again so that he could indwell you and you could dwell in him. And it is a, it's a simple act. It's a simple faith proposition. If you've never done that, if you've never had that moment where the, where you've actually said, Lord, I need my sins forgiven. I beg you, I'm going to pray that we chat before we leave today. Okay. Years ago, I prayed ignorantly. I just prayed one time when I was closing a service that, that, that the people that were saved or not saved under the sound of my, my voice would not be able to sleep until 
they got saved. And there was a dude in that class or in that uh, in that in that church who went home and tried to take a nap and he couldn't. He was dead tired. He was super tired. He couldn't take a nap, and he knew that God wasn't allowing him to sleep until we until he got saved. And he got saved that day. I might not pray that specific prayer for you today because we're all tired. Like. <laughs> It's New Year's Eve. I pray that this year, how about that, you get that taken care of. Amen. You've got to get it taken care of before you cross into. Don't do it. Don't wait until next year. Do it this year today. Tom. Tom got there. He got there with me. All right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for uh, 